This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And again, here with me in this tiny studio in the ANU's Crawford School is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, the AIIA, in partnership with whom we are producing this podcast. Hello once again, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Well, we're here, episode three, and we are slowly getting used to it. We can now proudly say that we occupy our own dedicated channel on iTunes called Australia in the World. And that in turn means that popular apps, including CastBox and Overcast, have us too. So please, dear listeners, subscribe and give us five star ratings if you, if you are so minded. Now, on today's episode, we are going to lead off with the news. Well, even if you're not so minded. Even if actually, you're not, okay, yeah, well, just... No, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what you really think. Just give us the five star. We need five stars. Yeah. All the stars, people. All the stars. So on today's episode, we're going to lead off with uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's China reset speech, uh, as it's been known, before turning to the question of Australia's soft power. And following this, we are very excited to present our first interview on the podcast, which is with Miles Cooper a former career diplomat and distinguished public servant. Miles is a particular expert on Southeast Asia, and so we'll be covering Malaysia and Indonesia in our discussion with him. Okay, that's the plan. Let's get started. First, as I said, we want to turn to a speech made by the Prime Minister at the University of New South Wales on the 7th of August. With China's ambassador to Australia and the Consul General in Sydney both in attendance, as well as a number of university vice-chancellors, the PM delivered remarks that were analysed in the media as being an attempt to, quote, reset the recently troubled bilateral relationship with China. Earlier that week, after meeting with our Foreign Minister Julie Bishop in Singapore, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi stated, quote, Australia can do more to boost mutual trust rather than making groundless suspicion. Now, it would take multiple episodes to discuss the complexity and the depth of the bilateral relationship between Australia and China. And since last year in 2017, the real tensions that have emerged, and that's something that we are planning on doing uh, in a future podcast episode when we do a deeper dive. But for now, you know, I can foreshadow issues like the foreign interference laws, technology cooperation, uh, Chinese foreign investment in Australia, Chinese students at Australian universities, and, you know, I think it's fair to say public remarks by Australian leaders, including Turnbull and Bishop, which have appeared to take a bolder and perhaps more assertive stance more generally at odds uh, with Chinese positions on local and regional issues. So if we turn to the speech itself, uh, the PM, and I'll quote here, reaffirmed the significance of Australia's long-standing and deep relationship with China. And then he went on to describe Australians of Chinese descent, of which I am one, I should note, as, quote, a vital thread in the fabric of Australian society. And he talked at length about the importance of Chinese students in Australia and at universities, and even stated that Canberra was open to working with China on the Belt and Road Initiative, and that we, quote, welcome students, tourists, researchers and investors from China. However, the PM also stated, and this is a longer quote, and then I'll ask my first question of you, Alan, 
So this is the quote. Australia continues to address its own interests by pursuing a relationship with China based on mutual respect and understanding. For our part, we act to advance Australia's prosperity, ensure the independence of our decision-making and secure the safety and freedom of our people. And in doing so, we support an international order based on the rule of law where might is not right and the sovereignty of all nations is respected by others, a principle President Xi endorsed when he addressed a joint sitting of the Australian Parliament in November 2014. With those lengthy quotes in mind, Alan, how did you read the speech? What was the purpose and did Turnbull succeed? Uh, Some things in foreign policy uh, happen unexpectedly. This, however, was as deliberate and carefully choreographed a diplomatic response as we've seen in quite a while, I think. Uh, the Chinese ambassador was present for the, uh, for the speech. Uh, the Chinese foreign ministry was primed to respond immediately by noting and commending the speech. Now, the purpose was obviously to get things back on track with the Chinese government, which had put China in a, which had put Australia rather into a deep freeze, including on senior visits, uh, following a series of what, in my view, anyway, were self-inflicted problems in messaging by Australian ministers. We had a whole series of things, including Malcolm Turnbull's appropriation of Chairman mm. Mao's possibly apocryphal, (laughs) words claiming that uh, uh, Australia has stood up in regard to the foreign interference legislation. Uh, That debate became entirely centred around uh, China. Uh, We had messages like Senator Fiorenti Wells's criticisms of Chinese roads to nowhere in the in the uh, Pacific. Mm. So things had got very untidy, and I think the government recognised that it needed to um, bring things back together. I thought it was a very cleverly crafted speech. It was framed around education, which was a sensible way of doing it, and mm. had the added benefit of reassuring. Vice-Chancellors are among the most nervous of all the stakeholders in Australia, given the dependence for uh, Australian university funding on foreign students. I thought he cleverly quoted Xi Jinping to make a number of the points that Mm -hmm. he himself wanted to make. So I think it was successful in what he wanted to do. One thing that struck me was it wasn't just the Chinese foreign ministry that noted its appreciation and seemed to approve of the speech. I read, also read approving analysis from, for example, the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, Greg Sheridan, who I would normally associate with uh, someone who is you know, consistently agreeing with China. So the fact that Turnbull was able to get commentators on both sides of the debate is surely a good thing and quite a deft manoeuvre. Well, it wasn't all favourable, of course, uh, proving that Tony Abbott is not the only former Australian Prime Minister out for revenge on Malcolm Turnbull, Kevin Rudd, described it as a grovelling mea culpa. But I think the reason it's been generally well received is that it marks essentially a restatement of the policies towards China that have been adopted by every Australian government since Rudd's. That is that we welcome China's rise, that we accept that it will want to extend its role in international and regional affairs but we want to ensure that it's operating in a system where the rules are jointly agreed and all voices can be heard. This is not exactly the same as um, the views of others. It's a different line, for example, from the words we hear in documents like the UN 
uh, the US national defence strategy, which uh, describes China as a central challenge to US prosperity and security and is seeking Indo-Pacific regional hegemony. So there was none, none of uh, that dimension to, um, to Turnbull's speech. So my final question on this topic then is, what can we expect sort of in the future? I note the Lowy Institute's Richard McGregor, who in my view is one of the best strategic thinkers on China in the entire world, called it a, quote, reset on a reset, saying, quote, it is wise to temper expectations about ties getting overly cosy in the immediate future. Where does the government go from here? Oh, well, I think Richard's absolutely right. And there are certainly more problems ahead, including the decision on whether the Chinese company Huawei will be eligible to participate in the uh, Australian um, 5G uh, system. Uh, there are decisions to be made about the uh, nature of uh, sort of high-tech collaboration. So the, the next thing to look for is a visit to China mm-hmm. by Julie Bishop. That'll require careful uh, reading. I think this speech tidies things up, but the job of managing China, uh, working together on many things, disagreeing on other things, is going to be the single most difficult task for Australian foreign policy in the decades ahead. So everything we want to do is going to have a China dimension to it, whether it's uh, economic or social or strategic. So this is, I think, only the beginning and Australian governments generally are just sorting out their uh, their attitudes. I think the, the same is also true of, uh, of uh, China uh, as well. Some of the problems we're seeing at the moment relate to China's own uncertainty about ways of being a great power and debates within China that are hidden from our views at present. Actually, one more question that just came to mind. You mentioned earlier, Alan, that some of the wounds were self-inflicted and that ministers and the prime minister may have said things in an intemperate way or an inappropriate way, Um, but that many of the base policy disagreements um, or divergences in interests are still there. So to what extent should the lesson we draw from this, if this is a bookmark on 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 a deep freeze period and things are going to improve from here... Is the lesson about careful public remarks and and careful presentation of views and and discipline uh, from Australian leaders rather than the need to think about deep policy realignments um, based on on pressure or strong opinions from Beijing? No, as I say, I think think that every recent Australian government has adopted the same policies. If you read the foreign policy white paper, uh, for for example, I think it's... um, it's blindingly self-evident. I think what we need to what we need to do with uh, China. But the important thing is to know what you want. So to have a, a coherent policy view at the centre that brings all the various strands of Australian policy together. To articulate that consistently and clearly, and with one single voice. Mm. Uh, and that was the thing that had uh, got un- unravelled a bit uh, in recent uh, months here. One single voice indeed. Okay, let's move on to the next topic, which is about soft power. And Foreign Minister Julie Bishop announced on the 14th of August a new review of Australia's soft power. We've been falling down the international rankings, apparently. Let me quote uh, from the media release. Soft power is the ability to influence the behaviour or thinking of others through the power of ideas and attraction. And as an IR scholar, I know that's a pretty good definition. 
now to return to the quote, by leveraging our soft power strengths, we can advance Australia's global reputation and prosperity. These strengths include our economy, multicultural society, world-class education system and sporting prowess, as well as our attractive lifestyle. Australia starts from a position of strength in global surveys of soft power, but there is always more that we can do. It is the right time to start a national conversation about the character of Australia's influence, particularly in, in the Indo-Pacific. We must keep pace with rapid globalisation and digital connectivity in order to cut through the crowded marketplace of ideas. Now, Alan, this review comes out of the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. Uh, and I note that the, the government is currently taking submissions of any listeners out there want to have their say, you can, uh, you can upload those onto the internet. And I myself am planning on submitting one, I think, because I teach a course on soft power. Alan, why are we talking about this? Why this concern with soft power at this point in time? Well, soft power has been in fashion ever since uh, Joseph Nye invented the term, um, but there's no general agreement on what it is, and a lot of other variants have sprouted uh, off it, like smart power and uh, sharp power. You can, you can see the vagueness uh, about it in the way it's treated in the uh, foreign policy white paper. The section on soft power includes everything from a stronger nation brand through digital engagement, the aid program, education, sports diplomacy, mm-hmm. Uh, G'day USA, uh, so everything. But look, in my view, um, power in any form is power. Uh, That is the ability to influence the behaviour and thinking of others, as you quoted uh, before. So in my view, we should be grabbing anything that helps us to do that. And with luck, the submissions, including yours, Darren, (laughs) uh, will generate some good ideas for uh, for the Australian government. But my sort of interpretation of the um, uh, of the request for submissions is that even the government itself is looking looking around for ways of uh, making sense of soft power. Well, the the CEO of the AAA, Melissa Conley Tyler, was quoted in an Australian Financial Review article just a few days ago, saying, "Quote: Countries like Australia, where we don't have hard power assets, we can't bully others or buy them off." We have to use the assets that make us attractive. Now, the article that quotes Melissa raises the possibility, for example, of diplomats using social media to push back against anti-Australian sentiment. I'm trying to get at what are we we talking about here? What concrete things do you think we could be doing differently to leverage or enhance our soft power? Is it about fighting back on social media or is there something else that I'm missing? the background briefings for journalists at the time of the announcement of the review all seemed to emphasise social media. And if Donald Trump has done one thing, uh, it's to cement social media as a key form of diplomatic communications. Mm. Uh, in my case, it makes you long for the slow and languorous days of the note verbal, and our younger listeners can look that up on Google. Um, We saw another example of the power of social media in the recent spat between uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Canada after Christian Freeland, the Canadian foreign minister, criticised Saudi Arabia's imprisonment of a women's activist, and the Saudis responded by expelling the ambassador and freezing trade and investment. Mm. So we now know that uh, you know, social, social media has uh, has uh, real world implications. There's no 
doubt, I think, that the use of social media is intrinsic uh, to all forms of diplomacy now, state to state as well as public. And I think that Australian diplomats, like others, are in the very early stage, however, of learning how to use it effectively. I should note, though, that another soft power question for Australia at present relates to one of the very oldest forms of uh, public diplomacy, Radio Australia, that is Mm. shortwave broadcast to the South Pacific. That seems to be coming up again as another form of soft power. So I suppose the point there is that all sorts of technologies, old and new, need to be coordinated to, um, to ensure that you're sending out your message in the best possible way. Well, when I think of of soft power, I think of an advertisement that was placed by Tourism Australia uh, at the the most recent Super Bowl, uh, the US football massive event in February of each year. And Tourism Australia purchased very expensive advertising time to play an advertisement that sort of began off as a trailer for a new Crocodile Dundee movie where Crocodile Dundee's son, who was played by this goofy American actor Danny McBride visits Australia and he's met by one of the Hemsworth brothers. I can't remember which one. And it, it seems like we're, we're going to get a new comedy in the making, but it turns out it's an ad for, for tourism uh, and Australia's beauty and, and what a great place to visit uh, Super Bowl watches. And, you know, that's, that's a very powerful message. It, I think it generates affection um, and you know, indeed great love of Australia and, and a feeling amongst American consumers, albeit those watching uh, Gridiron, um, that Australians are like them and, and, and a country that they should feel positively towards. But that's just one image. That is that the image that we want to be projecting? Or how can we control the image that we're projecting to different audiences around the world? Is it possible that Tourism Australia might come to define who we are in certain parts of the world? And would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that's, that's sort of obviously a, a key question that the government has to ad- address. As I said before, they're talking about something called nation brand in this uh, soft power review. And whether the nation brand we want is one that emphasises our, as the Prime Minister would say, sort of innovation and sophistication and uh, high-tech expertise or the uh, uh, simpler images of Australia that uh, come through in the tourism uh, ads is unclear. Now, I'm absolutely sure that tourism ad will uh, get people flocking out here, but it's not going to do a whole lot for the image of Australia as a uh, top-ranking power in areas of high-tech and science. That's true. That's true. Okay, well, that's a wrap for the news now, and we're going to turn to our first guest, Miles Cooper and Alan, uh, to please take it away. Uh, we're really lucky to have as our first guest on the Australia and the World podcast, Miles Cooper. Miles has been the Australian Ambassador or High Commissioner in Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines. He's been Deputy Head of Mission in Jakarta, as well as Deputy Secretary in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and Chief of Staff to Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, an illustrious career at the core of Australian foreign policy. And I can't think of any Australian diplomat with his knowledge and experience of Southeast Asia. So who better to talk to us about recent developments in the region? Welcome, Miles. Um, Thank you, Alan, and you're, you're very kind. Let me, let me turn to Malaysia. A lot of un, unexpected things have happened in the world over the past three years. The election of Donald Trump as president, Brexit, 
the decision to award the Nobel Prize for Literature to Bob Dylan. <laughs> but none of these things has surprised me more than the fact that we are sitting here talking about the 93-year-old Prime Minister of Malaysia uh, being Mahathir Mohamed. And what's more is heir apparent uh, being the uh, Anwar Ibrahim, uh, his long-standing uh, deputy with whom he had a very famous uh, falling out and who is later imprisoned. There's a backstory here which is too complicated to go into. But anyway, here is Mahathir again, a thorn in the side of Australian prime ministers ranging from Howard uh, to uh, or back to uh, Hawke. Um, Paul Keating famously described him as recalcitrant and his thorniness uh, derives uh, not just from a prickly personality but from the fact that he also does tend to see Australia as an outrider in uh, in Southeast Asia. He was uh, reluctant to accept the view that we keep pressing that Australia is a legitimate member of the institutions, economic and political, of Asia. So does Mahathir Mohamed's uh, return as Prime Minister going to make life more difficult for us, Miles? Um, well, it certainly is an extraordinary event to see Dr Mahathir come out of some kind of time warp and uh, become Prime Minister of Malaysia again. I don't know if he popped out of a blue telephone box or uh, <laughs> some other doctor. Who? Um, so um, it is really very extraordinary. And uh, it raises questions, given the basis of his campaign against the former government there, as to whether he's had some kind of, uh, I won't say personality transplant, but uh, um, he has become a convert to reformasi, reform of the Malaysian system, uh, much of which was put in place during his p first period as, as prime minister. So that that is really weird. You know, here we have uh, this brand of detergent uh, with new added reformasi credentials. Um, now, how long that'll or how that will manifest itself during his new period in office, we'll have to wait and see. But there's, there's certainly great expectations on the part of the Malaysian uh, electorate. Uh, expectations for reform in all sorts of areas of Malaysia, um, less corruption, uh, more meritocratic administration, um, more honest uh, judicial uh, system. So there, there are many ways in which people have expectations of him and his new administration. And so far, at least, he's been taking some steps in those directions. Uh, whether he'll how should I put it, uh, manifest a complete change of approach. Uh, I have my doubts, and it's certainly going to be very difficult for his administration to to govern um, when previous the previous administration over many decades uh, relied on corruption. Um, it was the money that oiled the wheels and relied on a degree of racism, uh, affirmative action for the Malay community, which of course is... Uh, one, one man's or one person's um, affirmative action is another person's discrimination. So there's a whole way in which various, we would regard them as flaws or deficiencies in the Malaysian system, where it were deeply embedded. 
Now, can this new administration reform and govern uh, without turning back and relying on some of those past unsavory practices? He's talking very positively. Um, now, you, you ask about relations with Australia and what his approach might be. I hesitate to make a prediction because he's already shown some sharp turns in his approach to domestic affairs. Will his approach to external affairs uh, be different? And you did mention the word Alan uh, recalcitrant. And uh, I can't resist mentioning that in a call on Dr. Mahathir while I was High Commissioner there four or five years ago, um, I was bold enough to uh, recall that episode and mention the word recalcitrant. And he looked up at me and smiled and rather ruefully said, well, I guess I probably was rather recalcitrant. <laughs> now, whether that means he's uh, mellowed and uh, understands the context in which it was made, and uh, um, I, I don't know. Um, certainly, Australia has changed, and <clears throat> I was struck by his almost startled look when he queried the presence with me of a young, very capable younger Australian diplomat who was uh, from a Cape Malay background, a community in South Africa, a young chap who was a Muslim and a serious Muslim. And I think I could almost hear Mahathir's brain, the gears going clunk clunk as he sought to comprehend that uh, a young Australian diplomat could A, not be white, and B, be a Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like to think that uh, he has a more up-to-date appreciation of contemporary Australia than he used to have, and maybe even an appreciation of uh, how Australia could be useful to Malaysia. Um, but, uh, but time will tell. Miles, if I could jump in with a question about Malay politics and the forces that brought him back to power. Were these a reflection of changing political dynamics, perhaps the emergence of a new coalition inside Malaysia that wants to take the country in a different direction, um, given you know, the United Malay Organisation, which had led Malaysia for such a long time, was ousted? Or was it really a reaction to uh, the politics and the controversy and the perceived corruption uh, of his predecessor? Yeah, interesting question to analyse. Um, I think that uh, incrementally over a period there had been changes in the political dynamics within Malaysia and uh, over successive elections uh, the government lost the Chinese community, lost the Indian community and one also saw a steady drift within the Malay community away from uh, the Malay dominated party that, that, that ran the government. Um, now some of that was uh, I guess accelerated because of disgust at the alleged corruption of Najib and his cronies. Some of it was perhaps uh, growing urbanisation and um, people who come from the conservative rural areas into the cities get exposed to new ideas, um, get onto the internet, <laughs> social media. And so there were a number of factors, I think, that uh, brought about this quite remarkable election result against all the odds, against the state-run media, um, against the uh, uh, terrible gerrymander that the opposition faced. And uh, perhaps 25% or more of the Malays uh, supported this new coalition. Now, how permanent that will be, I don't know. I'm pretty confident that the... Uh, the forces of darkness, if that's how one might uh, <laughs> describe the the vanquished 
uh, former government, um, they'll be developing a narrative that the new government, which does include quite a lot of uh, Chinese or Indian or other mm. um, uh, ministers and leaders, they'll be developing a narrative that the interests of the Malays are being overlooked, uh, being put in second place. Um, and that's going to be very difficult for the government because uh, Malay dominance or leadership, Ketuanan uh, Malayu, has, has been an essential element of the government's narrative, the previous government's narrative, and the affirmative action, whether it's in education or access to loans or contracts, um, government office, all the preferences that the Malays have had, will the new government change that and make it more meritocratic? Because if it does so, that'll feed into that narrative that the new government doesn't care about Malay interests. And the Malays are, of course, the majority, about two-thirds of the population. So I would not be surprised if there were a bit of a swing back from this election result as that narrative uh, might gain hold. But the new government will have this delicate task of displaying reform credentials and implementing reform mm. whilst at the same time uh, acknowledging uh, the primacy, uh, dare I say it, of the Malay interests. Is that one of the reasons why Mahathir is in China at the moment, uh, complaining about new versions of colonialism where poor countries are unable to compete with rich countries. Um, one of the issues that he raised during the election campaign was the sort of sheer volume of Chinese investment in the country, $30 billion, I think, of uh, projects underway, and he's already cancelled a proposed rail uh, scheme along the East Coast. So what is he trying to do with China, do you think? Um, it's a very interesting development because um, in the past he was reaching out to China as part of a greater East Asia um, and wanted to formalise those links uh, with other East Asian countries. And um, one had the impression he'd be, he would have been quite happy to see the US and Australia and Britain pretty much excluded or on the outer in the region. This remark about uh, not wanting to see a new version of colonialism, and he, I think he mentioned poorer countries uh, against rich countries, suggests that he does have a, a, a contemporary appreciation of China's growing wealth and power, and that he does not want to have Malaysia um, subsumed within China's greater ambitions. But he, his remarks in Beijing suggest he also wants the Chinese to feel that Malaysia values the connection with China. And uh, you'll have this delicate task of trying to extract Malaysia from the, the major loans that it entered into for these big infrastructure projects, and they add up to about 22 billion US. Whether he'll get away with that, um, one wonders. Um, but maybe it's an encouraging sign that there is a bit of realism there in his attitude towards uh, towards China. It'd be interesting to see too whether as the most experienced statesman, the most articulate statesman within ASEAN these days, whether he'll seek to influence ASEAN attitudes towards China and the, the broader world. If I can quickly link then mm -hmm. the, the, my last question with Alan's last question and you know, to ask about sort of the domestic politics of China inside Malaysia. So if we see other countries where there has been an electoral backlash against Chinese infrastructure and some of the negative side effects 
that are, are perceived to be associated with that, for example, in Sri Lanka or back in the Philippines in the, two, in the 2000s under the, a few presidents ago. You know, how is China seen uh, by the public? Is it seen as you know, in the inevitable leader of the region, as a vital source of investment and economic uh, prosperity? Or are there increasing suspicions or nervousness around China which might provide support and ballast for a more assertive, uh, independent approach by Mahathir? I think under the previous Malaysian administration, Prime Minister Najib, I think, displayed a certain ambivalence towards China. Um, he was uh, fond of portraying himself as a leader in cooperating and developing Malaysia's links with China, mm. as his father had been. I think his father was the first ASEAN leader to visit China mm -hmm. as Prime Minister. So he was conscious of that, of the value of that. And as he got embroiled in the 1MDB scandal, I think it was useful to him that China came in with some money in various forms to um, try and... It could be shifted around yeah, to, to plug to, some holes. And to uh, alleviate his situation. Yes. Um, he was also quite careful not to offend China by too much of an aggressive tone about the events, developments in the South China yes. Sea. Um, but beneath all that, certainly from our conversations with various parts of the Malaysian system, security agencies and so on, there was an apprehensiveness, a wariness about China and what it was seeking to do. Any Malaysian government has to be pretty careful talking about China, take into account the possible repercussions for interracial, intercommunity relations within Malaysia itself. And it's quite, one can't rule out that if there were a real stoush or sort of heightened rhetoric between Malaysia and China, that that could have implications for the situation of the Chinese Malaysian yes. community, who have a you know, fairly delicate position anyway, but are very important to the economy and investment. And uh, there's already been enough of a brain drain and a capital drain mm. from Malaysia because of uh, the feelings of the Chinese Malaysian community about their prospects into the future. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to Indonesia. Miles, you've been a regular uh, visitor there and the country is gearing up for presidential elections next year. The president, uh, Joko Widodo, has announced an unusual vice presidential running mate, someone from the very centre of the Islamic establishment in Indonesia, Maruf Amin, the chairman of the Indonesian Ulema Council and general guide, whatever that may be, to uh, NU, um, which is the mass Islamic organisation which claims uh, 40 million, I think, or something like that, uh, members in Indonesia. Uh, he was a man who was heavily involved in the jailing for blasphemy of the former uh, governor of, uh, of uh, Jakarta. The other big candidate in the election uh, for president will be Prabowo Subianto, who's usually tagged by the Australian media as former military strongman in their descriptions of him. Jokowi's nomination of Amin uh, has been interpreted as a sign of growing Islamization in Indonesia and worries about extremism there in the Australian uh, media and community generally seem to be growing. So I'd be interested in hearing from you how you see these developments and how we should interpret them as we go through to the elections next year. Thanks, Alan. Uh, one might say that uh, who cares who uh, Jokowi, Joko Widodo or his 
most most likely rival Prabowo Subianto, who cares who they would nominate as their uh, vice presidential candidates because the vice presidents, makes me think of the US, don't have any formal regular powers. A bucket full of warm spit, I think Lyndon Johnson famously <laughs> described the office in the United States as being. Right. Um, but uh, I think such a, both decisions, I think, are, are really very significant. The choice by Jokowi of Maruf Amin will pander to some perceptions overseas in particular that Indonesia is falling prey to growing Islamization. I don't think personally that Jokowi selected him out of uh, some sense of Islamic piety. I think he actually would have preferred somebody else. But uh, the leaders of Nadlatul Ulama, this very big Islamic organization, I've seen estimates up to 90 million of how many wow. members it has. They made it clear they didn't like the guy that Chikowi had in mind and they wanted to foist Maruf Amin on him. Now he's 75 years old. He's very conservative socially and he's uh, very old-fashioned, speaking of time warps, um, in his attitudes to social social issues such as the LGBT issues and polygamy and, uh, and other things. Now, I think it was a very calculated political move to have him on board and, and probably why Jokowi went along with it. That is that he would provide some kind of a shield uh, against possible attacks uh, on Jokowi for not being Islamic enough. And uh, the choice of Amin on his ticket, I think, put paid to any suggestions that uh, the Jokowi ticket isn't uh, serious about Islam. But I think it has other implications too. Um, Jokowi, when he was first elected, when he was elected last time around, I think came across to many people, particularly young people, as holding out a prospect of reform. And uh, I think probably that was a bit misplaced, or it's proved to be misplaced in many ways. In some ways, Jokowi is proving to be a more traditional Indonesian politician. Um, and uh, I think um, Amin, as vice president, could still have quite a bit of influence speaking out on social issues, maybe even economic issues. He has a concept of uh, economy umat, the economy of the Muslim community. He thinks that's important, whatever that means. Um, and uh, whether you know his views on Sharia or other things could affect Jokowi's agenda for the remainder of his turn, we'll have to wait and see. Um, one benefit of his selection from Jokowi's perspective is that at age 75, he's unlikely to want to manoeuvre himself into a position as um, Jokowi's successor mm. in the next election, um, whereas perhaps a younger person might have taken advantage of that position to manoeuvre in that direction. I think alongside the choice of uh, Amin, we have the choice of Prabowo um, for his vice president um, as, as the candidate, and he's chosen a much younger guy, age 49, Santiago uh, Uno, who's a very prosperous um, very good-looking, uh, handsome sort of dynamic young businessman. And uh, he, I'm sure, will appeal much more to a younger generation, and he, I'm sure, will also appeal a lot more to the business community and uh, people who value experience. He's American-educated at university level. He was actually a 
kind of a foster child of a very wealthy Christian Chinese Indonesian family, the Surya Jayas. How close he is to them at the moment, I don't know, but he certainly has a lot of experience at high levels of business and has worked with different business communities inside Indonesia, which should be reassuring to some who wonder about their long-term security there. Um, he's alleged by an opponent to have spent um, $100 million securing the vice presidential candidacy, $50 wow. million each Australian to two different parties who support his nomination. Now that's, if true, would be bad, naughty. Um, and uh, could jeopardise his prospects of staying as a candidate. Um, but he's said to have wealth, personal wealth, amounting to around $500 million. Um, so I guess he could afford it for this, this kind of uh, venture. But I think it'll, it'll make the, the contest closer, I think, than it would otherwise have been. Because I think um, Jokowi's choice, some are already calling it a blunder. And, you know, while he might be a shield in one sense for attacks from one direction, I think it'll weaken his support mm. in other parts of the electorate. And Prabowo, who has a reputation not just being, a, I don't know whether he's actually a strong man, but he's certainly military, and there's certainly been some very ugly allegations about his human rights record, and he's a very uh, outspoken, aggressive sort of personality. But having this more modern, contemporary businessman guy a pretty smooth operator uh, as his vice presidential candidate, um, I think that'll contrast quite significantly. We also have to bear in mind that, you know, heaven forbid that some calamity might befall Jokowi, but it's always important, as in the US, that the president chooses as a running mate someone who the rest of the community uh, would feel uh, might be ready or plausible as a successor should something happen. The idea of Amin taking over in such circumstances, I think, would be quite alarming. Um, on the other side, the idea of this younger businessman, um, I think most people would not find so threatening. Miles, if I could just add one more question on the end here. Uh, when you were talking about Amin and his nomination to the vice presidency, I kept on thinking of Mike Pence. Uh, the current U.S. vice president, who we presume was nominated alongside Donald Trump to placate the Christian right, uh, and he is an individual who would be, I would think, be less likely to win a general election because he's really unacceptable to uh, you know, a majority of the American people. But as a vice president, he's relatively harmless, and he ensures a Christian you know, agenda for the White House. Does you know does a men's nomination to this vice presidency uh, role? sort of represent a high point for Islamic influence? And the reason I ask this is because if we're thinking about Indonesian foreign policy, should we be paying attention to a possible agenda coming from the religious sector in Indonesia, driving Indonesia in a different direction, or are these really about internal matters and domestic politics? I'll answer that, but first I've got to get out of my mind the, the picture of uh, Mike Pence as a senior Islamic cleric. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, to, to turn to your question, um, I think it's pretty unlikely that Amin's selection will represent some kind of a turning point towards a more Islamic foreign policy. I think Indonesian leaders have always been a bit careful to ensure that uh, you know, Indonesia plays a constructive role uh, in international Islamic affairs. And uh, I think if you see 
amends appointment as as a significant one, and I do, but not necessarily as a as a high point of Islamization. There have been other developments, the persecution of some minority mm. groups, um, whether it's Christians or uh, uh, Ahmadiyya or Shia in Indonesia, that could also lead one to think that it's becoming more Islamic. And of course, most Indonesian Muslim women these days uh, wear a hijab. Um, so that's a visible change. Um, I'd suggest, though, that uh, <coughs> the bulk of Indonesian Muslims are actually pretty moderate. And we've seen in some of the regional elections that have been taking place um, in the uh, districts of Indonesia that candidates who are strongly Islamic, a lot of them didn't get elected. People preferred more technocratic or pragmatic uh, candidates who could do something uh, for the electorate in a, in a practical way. Um, so I hesitate to say that it marks a, a high point of Islamization, uh, although the selection, of course, lends itself to that kind of interpretation. Yeah. Well, look, this uh, whole uh, story of the Indonesian elections is one we're obviously going to be following on Australia in the World podcast over the uh, next 12 months. So thanks very much, uh, Miles, for coming along today. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction. And uh, we'll call on you again, no doubt, before this uh, road has come to its uh, conclusion. Thanks uh, to you, Alan. And uh Darren, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, well, that's all for today's uh, third episode of the Australia in the World podcast. But before we finish up, we want to do our final segment, which we have called Reading, Listening and Watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening and watching or watching at the moment? Uh, I've been reading again, um, and it's a new book that's just come out by Brendan Taylor from the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre here at the ANU. It's called The Four Flashpoints, How Asia Goes to War, and it's published by Black Ink. I was at the launch uh, last week, and Brendan's done a really terrific job if you're interested in the future of security in, in Asia and talking about the problems on the Korean Peninsula, Taiwan the East China Sea and South China Sea. So if you want a background in what's going on, it's a terrific read and also uh, has some unexpected uh, conclusions. He, his view, for example, unlike a lot of commentary, is that the South China Sea matters less than hmm. some of the uh, other uh, areas of uh, of possible um, contest. In okay, Asia. interesting. I look forward to reading that one. Well, mine is a very short one. It's a, a watching and it's a short little video clip uh, that I tweeted, I think, two, two or three days ago. Uh, today is the 21st of August, so you can ch search my feed. But it's a short video clip which is claimed on by the tweeter to represent the earliest colour footage of, of London uh, back in 1924. Uh, and it's sort of two minutes of just you know, the streetscapes, you know, cars and pedestrians and, and, and buses it's quite remarkable. One thing that jumps out at me is how empty the streets seem. Uh, very few people. And of course, if you if you click on the original tweet and you follow some of the replies, it, it very quickly descends into a dark discussion of where Britain had come from after World War One. how many people had died both in the war and also with the, the Spanish flu. Uh, and that was the reason why the streets were so empty and that this was the life. It, it, the colour is beautiful and it looks like a very peaceful, orderly place. But of course, it had emerged out of you know, some re recent horrors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, that is all, as I said, for today's episode. We want to give special thanks to AIIA CEO, Melissa Conley-Tyler, for her help 
and that of the AIAA generally in getting us up and running. We also thank AIAA intern Stephanie Rowell, our research assistant, and Manny Bovell, our audio engineer, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for technical support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and see you again soon.